welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus Podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. In today's episode, I interview Rachel Braun Sherl. Rachel successfully built and grew Sempre Laboratories, a venture-backed women's sexual wellness company. Sempre Laboratories developed topical products to help heighten women's feelings of desire and arousal. This company was successfully acquired by Innovuse Pharmaceuticals in 2013. Rachel calls herself a vagipreneur. Vagipreneur, y'all. That's amazing. I love it. And has been recognized by numerous publications, Best 50 Women in Business, Smart CEO Bravo Award, JWI's 10 Women to Watch, and so many more. She published her book in 2018 titled Orgasmic Leadership, Profiting from the Coming Surge in Female Health and Wellness. You have to read this book as soon as possible because it's full of insights pertinent to the femtech community. This was a badass episode. I hope we have Rachel back again really soon. Enjoy. Rachel, welcome to the show. So great to have you. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you this afternoon. I am really excited to have someone on our podcast who calls themselves a vagipreneur. Um, that is amazing and a term that I would like to start to call myself, honestly. Um, we're going to get into what that even means, but okay, um, <laughs> so awesome. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? So I've spent my career building brands and businesses, both for myself and for other people. Um, I have a psychology degree um, undergrad, and then I went to Stanford for business school. And from there, I went to Johnson & Johnson, where I worked on the Tylenol business. And what's important about that, uh, there are a number of things, is I got the foundational training in brand management, which is a very cross-functional approach to business building. But the people that I met there and the relationships that I, I built have sustained me throughout my professional career. So when I've done strategy consulting, which I've done the majority of my career, um, those are my clients. You know, I work every year. My largest clients are people who somehow are traced back to J&J when mm. I was there in the 90s. I'm working with a client right now who I've known for 20 years. I'm now, I originally met him at Johnson & Johnson. He's now head of his third organization. And, you know, I'm honored that he brings me along to deal with those issues. Um, about 11 years ago with my business partner, Mary Ench, we were exposed to an opportunity uh, for a product that approved arousal, desire, and satisfaction for women of all ages and life stages. And we, at that point, for the first time, raised venture capital, uh, bought the asset, and built a company. So that I've always been in women's businesses, and I've worked in businesses that affect women from the tops of their heads to the tips of their toes. Hmm. But the real focus on sexual health, women's health, reproductive health started about 12 years ago with, um, with this foray into this business and has continued since then. So it's now been you know, 12 years plus that I've really been focused on 
women's needs and the businesses that support them from menstruation through menopause. Wow. You're an OG, as they like to say, right? Ah, (laughs) Original gangster in women's health and wellness. I love it. Um, I consider myself very new to the industry and part of this podcast and the organization is just being really humble in that respect because I know I'm new to it, but I'm just so curious. I love having people like you on here to talk about what's the history, you know, and where, how far we have come, even if I'm upset that we're not further along, you know? Um, Absolutely. So that's a whole long conversation. uh Enormous, enormous strides in terms of the number of entrepreneurs, the number of companies being created, the act, the access to capital while still not where it needs to be is dramatically better um, than it's ever been. We still have channel challenges with access to media, channels mm-hmm. again we continue to make progress mm-hmm. and what's amazing about the people in this space that i find is two of one it's a very optimistic forward-thinking problem-solving kind of group yes i during quarantine i started this series called quotes from quarantine where i interview leaders in different areas of femtech sex tech and women's health and the reason that i chose to focus on that space is twofold. Being in this business is challenging for many of the reasons that we'll talk about, you know, social taboo, fundraising, and many, mm-hmm. uh, many other um, factors. But the people who are in this space, in my mind, tend to be extremely creative. So yeah. I really want to know what are some of the most creative people that I know um, in business? What are they doing personally and professionally to keep themselves and their businesses going during an unprecedented time in you know, certainly in my lifetime. Yeah. Well, I can say that the quarantine definitely put the fire under my butt to start this podcast. All of these episodes have been <laughs> recorded in quarantine so far. But uh, right. um, so 11 years ago, you started a startup called Sempre. Yeah. And Sempre, what, what was that company doing? What happened? So as I mentioned, we raised money um, to buy the asset. We built a company um, around the around the product and really became very active in the business space of female sexual health. Uh, at that time, we, we went to 100 different media outlets, online, um, cable, network, radio stations. It didn't matter. And 95% of them said no, meaning, no, we will not take your money to advertise, even though we had a very professional approach to advertising and we had a clinically proven product and there was essentially no real reason not to take our ads. Was it a drug? Nope. It was topically applied Topically, okay. um, to the outer lips of the um, labia um, within a couple of minutes, 10 to 12 minutes before engaging in activity. And then it peaked in 10 minutes and tailed off in 45. Uh, And you could use it over and over again. So there were a lot of amazing things about it. No drug-drug interactions, um, estrogen-free, paraben-free, hormone-free. And what we found when we started to try to build it through advertising was that, again, as I said, no one would take our ads. So that Mm. sparked a creative idea in our heads that if we couldn't buy media, we were going to earn it. Uh-huh. So, after yes, I, I love the hustle. Money, but, I love the hustle. But our first article came out on a Tuesday, um, in September, in the New York Times about the disparity between men and women's advertising. Mm-hmm. The next day, um, we were on the View and Good Morning America, and the following uh, weekend, following week, we did a seven-minute segment on ABC News. So the strategy, and many c- companies in this space are still using if you can't beat them, join them kind of strategy and creating noise about the disparity, but in a positive way, Mm -hmm. that's really when I started talking 
um, publicly and frequently and loudly and passionately about the business of female health. So we built that company. Um, we sold it in 2013, and I stayed in the space working with both large and small companies in this whole big complex world of female sexual health. So menstruation, menopause, hot flashes, fertility, infertility, disease prevention, incontinence, birth control, uh, you name it. Uh, I, I've, I've spent some time, uh, mm. a lot of time on those topics. Yeah, femtech is not niche. You know, no, people are like, what are you going to talk about in your podcast? I'm like, there's literally not enough episodes for us to cover it all. There's so much to talk about. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things that I do is when I'm um, coaching entrepreneurs who say, what if I'm meeting with people who don't care about female health? I said, quite honestly, from my experience, we don't need them to care about it. We need them to understand how they're going to make money from it. Yep. So you need to speak in a language that they understand. Mm -hmm. So 43% of women have sexual concerns and difficulties. That's 40% more than men who have ED. You know, a third wow. of women never have an orgasm. 33% of women have incontinence symptoms. Close to 50% of pregnancies every year are unwanted or mistimed. These are big, big, big societal yes. challenges that require big thinking and will support enormous businesses. And we're starting to see uh, venture capitalists and, and even, I would call, more creative sources of capital, funds created for diverse leaders or even one specifically focused on female health, really understanding the economic opportunity. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask this later, but you kind of brought it up now. Um, if there's a, you know, an aspiring entrepreneur and they want to do something in femtech, what are maybe the top three things you say you're telling, you would tell them to look into in terms of what is really, really needing to be disrupted right now? In terms of Business areas? Yeah, business areas. So they they want to do a startup. They want it to be in femtech, but they don't know in what you know area. Right. Well, I think there are a couple of different areas, uh, and all of them are getting more crowded every day. But I would say menopause, which is not one thing, uh, <laughs> is an area that absolutely is being targeted more and more. And there's huge opportunities. So whether it's the symptom relief part of it, whether it's the education part of it. And that's not to suggest that there aren't people doing it now. They're starting to more and more. Incontinence is, is quite often a, a symptom of menopause. It's also something that happens after women give birth. So I would say incontinence, both related to menopause and not, mm. I would say other symptomatology of um, menopause. And I would also say um, this whole, whole, whole big world called education. <laughs> and most of the companies that I work with and that are in this space do have some combination. Mm -hmm. You know, no one's selling vibrators and not telling you anything about sexual pleasure. Mm -hmm. No one's dealing with incontinence without talking to you about how the symptoms interfere, what's happening in your body so that you can come to a better solution. What's interesting when you put female entrepreneurs in charge of these is incontinence is one of my favorite examples. The people developing the devices right now talk about reducing the symptoms and that ultimately one of the benefits in addition to leaking less or having to spend less time searching for bathrooms is that they might enjoy more sexual intimacy. Yeah. That was not part of the discussion in my mind, before women were leading these businesses. Mm -hmm. We talked about how many things did you have, and there are pads, and there were, at that point, not very elegant solutions. Mm -hmm. But now it's much more about looking at her as an entire human being. Yep. Wow. What is a vagipreneur? 
So the article that I mentioned in the New York Times was written by this journalist who, you know, we think is brilliant by the name of Abby Ellen. And we were talking to her about the business of female health. And she said, oh, so you're a vagipreneur. And I said, <laughs> I love that. And, you know, we experimented and we'd introduce ourselves that way and people got it. And we'd mm -hmm. say, entrepreneur is the person in the business of female sexual health, reproductive health. And we used it so often, it was so useful that I picked up the phone and called Abby and I said, this is your word. You made it up. And I, you know, every time I talk about it, I give her credit. I refer mm -hmm. to her in the book. I said, do you have any intention of using this? Um, because if not, I would like to own it. Mm -hmm. and I'm going to use for it. And then I went through the process and I trademarked it. That's amazing. So does that mean that I can't call myself a vagipreneur or do I have to give you royalties if I do? <laughs> Just to know. Royalties. <laughs> Feel free to use it. There are lots of us out there. Um, and it was meant to not just describe the work I do, but the work that lots of other people do. So, okay, cool. Yeah, because that's I, I was doing some research on you and I was like, oh, my gosh, talk about a role model. That's the if you if I was a kid and, you know, someone asked me what I want to be when I grow up, it's now vagipreneur. Wow, I love that. <laughs> and one of the interesting things about this, I had written a book in the space called Orgasmic Leadership, Profiting from the Coming Surge in Women's Sexual Health and Wellness. And what is so interesting is one of the observations that we I make in the book as I'm interviewing three dozen people who have made a contribution to the space is very few people wake up and say, I want to talk, you know, grow up and say, I want to talk about vaginas yeah. all day. You yeah. know, I probably wanted to be a firefighter or a ballerina. I definitely wanted to be um, an Olympic gymnast or figure skater. Um, so never in there was a vagipreneur, but because the topics are so personal and because the opportunity is so big and because the barriers are so severe that you really do have to bring a passion to it. Yep. And me, part of being a entrepreneur is just this passion to make a change. And it's not just to do better in the world, which is critically important. It's to solve problems and have economic means so that you can make an impact in the world. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I often say when I speak to entrepreneurs who are interested in this space is it does not have to be a nonprofit. There's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with a nonprofit, but there's also nothing wrong with making money and then figuring out where you want to disperse your profits. Yeah. And so many of the companies in this space are absolutely fundamentally tied to using their, their growth and their finances to provide products to people in need. You know, mm -hmm. many of the companies associated with menstrual health donate products. Um, they, they support factories because in developing countries, a young woman or a girl misses seven to 10, uh, days a month of school. I'm sorry, three to seven days a month of, of school or work due to not having proper access to menstruation. Mm -hmm. So you can do good and and make a lot of money and make the world a better place and give people greater access. Mm -hmm. And that's all wonderful. And it's all integrated in this space, which is one of the things I really love. Do you think that the going down the nonprofit route and attitude rather than for profit is something that is uh, bigger in this industry because many of our leaders are women? I don't know that I can compare it as and you know, to other industries. I would say as a general rule, more women than men start out a venture thinking it's going to be a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So you know, we don't know that it's femtech specific. I, I think that's getting less and less frequent, and that's that's a big generalization, mm-hmm. um, obviously. But it's great to make money. Yeah, yeah. It's great to have the power to decide how you're going to use that money. Yeah, that's right. Whether it's back in your business or to support a podcast or support a charity or mentor people, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. That's what I like about it. It's the ability to choose how to spend that money and how to do it in a way that's consistent with what your business stands for. Yep. Yeah. You can do good and make money. It's true. You can do it. (laughs) Um, So tell us more about your book, Orgasmic Leadership. So what happened was I was sitting in a meeting and I met this amazing woman who was in a totally different sphere than I was. She was in marketing for law partners how they would market their services and okay. get paid, which is a big, big part and very successful in her field. I had never met anyone in her field before. And I just thought she was just so smart. And she turns to me and I do a lot of public speaking on leadership and entrepreneurship and women in business. And she turns to me at this event and says, you know, Rachel, everybody speaks about leadership and entrepreneurship and it's boring. Why don't you speak about leadership in the context of what you do? Mm-hmm. And I said, she said, what about orgasmic leadership? And I looked at her and I said, that's the greatest name I've ever heard. (laughs) Um, But, you know, when I go into companies, which I do a lot, they're not going to send out an email blast or put it on the corporate calendar that someone's coming to talk about orgasmic leadership. They will and do invite me to talk about leadership. And then I'm able to bring in examples in the context of female sexual health, but you know, absolutely. Um, many corporations and organizations where I go to speak have, you know, a feeling of discomfort about it. I would even say that when I was invited, when I launched the book two years ago, um, I was invited to many different places to speak. And at some places they would say to me, you know, we're in a conservative community. Don't even say the name of your book. Wow. It will make people feel uncomfortable. And I'll never forget, I was speaking at a large pharmaceutical company and there were hundreds of women in the room and we had this very interactive discussion. I managed never to mention the book. Wow. And at the end of the meeting, one of the um, attendees says, what's the name of your book? And I turned to my sponsor who was in the audience. I said, well, now what? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so... Basically, I just loved the idea and didn't know what to do with it. And a couple months later, I just an idea popped into my head that this was either a book or a series of articles. And I reached out to about a half a dozen people I knew in the space and did formal interviews. And that grew into I completed over three dozen of um, entrepreneurs uh, in femtech and women's health, educators, healthcare practitioners, and the book the result of it was a book that talks about how people in this space are doing really amazing things, capitalizing on existing business trends, mm. like changes in technology, whether that's distribution technology, whether it's materials engineering technology, new models around social impact, new approaches to education. And it really at its, at its heart is a business book because that's how I approach the category. Mm-hmm. But the stories and the people are just so fascinating. Wow. Can you tell us about one of the femtech people that you interviewed in the book? Sure. So one of them is a a young woman by the name of Suhani Jalata, who I 
stumbled across. I didn't know her. Mm-hmm. This was years ago. She, um, I read about her in the alumni magazine. We both went to the same college. We both went to Duke, clearly decades apart. And she had started this business. She had grown up in um, relative comfort in India and had been very conscious about the just the, the living conditions of women in the slums of Mumbai mm-hmm. and had wanted to have an impact on finding a solution to that. She ultimately, uh, long story short, created a, a, a foundation through which she helped women literally manufacture and create their own sanitary protection and then learn how to sell it, women nice. in the slums of Mumbai. So speaking in the language, in a culture um, where the community could understand one another. And what to me was so brilliant about it is not only was she providing solutions for menstrual protection, but she was giving them an economic engine yep. to literally change the trajectory of their life. Yeah. And she she's just this amazing person. And one of my favorite parts of the story is in 2016, um, she was named Glamour Magazine's College Student of the Year. And at that time, an actress who was famous took an interest and then went and visited her and her workers in India. Flash forward, uh, fast forward, uh, the um, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry decide to get married. Meghan Markle had been the actress who had come to Whoa. see her in India after meeting her at the Glamour College Women of the Year Award. And in lieu of gifts, Harry and Meghan said, uh, please give to one of these seven organizations, uh-huh. one of which was Suhani's. <gasps> and wow. on top of that, she and some of her team were invited to the royal wedding and they went. So I just of course they went. <laughs> I love her problem solving. I love her understanding of the community that she's in. I love the idea that she created um, an economic vehicle yeah. for people and you know how cool to be at the royal wedding but there's there's dozens of stories like that that people who gravitate towards this space are interesting you know they're passionate you know literally at least 50 percent of the people in the book created a business around solving a personal problem that they didn't see a solution to yep and rather than saying throwing their hands up and saying there's not a solution they looked for a solution and then they said you know what this is a business yeah. And they're doing whether it's discovering that they had vaginal dryness or figuring out that they didn't like the environment in which you would buy uh, sex toys or mm. better solutions for incontinence or sex education, all the areas that you and I have talked about, people doing really fascinating things Amazing. around finding solutions. Well, we're definitely... I, I, go ahead. We're definitely going to link your book up with our uh, podcast description. Everyone who is a listener, I think, is going to love the book. I I just ordered mine, so I'm really excited to dig into that. Um, you mentioned like you. that the femtech initiative that 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 one founder took. It also provided economic benefits beyond just you know menstrual help for these women. And I you know am on this you know march and this shout that I say that if you improve women's health and wellness, first of all, you improve everyone's health and wellness. You improve the families. And the statistics support that. Yep. And that, and I've also been on this train of like, um, if you improve women's wellness, you improve economy, right? So if women are feeling better, 
they're in working and they're more present and they're not taking time off or they're, you know, if we can innovate moms in the workplace and, you know, innovations around breastfeeding, like maybe we can actually push women up higher in, you know, um, different levels of their job. And do you have anything to say to that? Cause I've just kind of been spitballing it. So it sounds like you have <laughs> some more data or experience about it. Are, there's definitely data to suggest that as you, as women rise, you know, the entire community mm-hmm. um, and economy rises. And that particular example of Suhani is she provided a solution so people don't have to miss work or school and gave them the tools to have a business. Mm-hmm. So both of those things um, in combination uh, really made a difference. Going to fertility, and this is a, a, a tangent to, to what you said, one of the things that companies are now doing is, and, and high um and employees who are sought after, they are looking at the benefits that companies offer as a way to entice them. Mm. You know, do they have generous fertility benefits? Mm-hmm. Will they help me with IVF um, if I have an issue around that? I, I absolutely do believe, and again, there's data that suggests that you know companies that have diverse leadership, including women, do economically um, better, and you know, as a society that there is an impact on how we treat women and children in terms of the health of the, the overall economy. So I 100% believe that there's lots of people doing research that supports that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, particularly when you're in a business of, of serving women's health, that is really where the rubber meets the road. These are businesses. These are also solutions for women who want to be in business mm-hmm. and maybe couldn't have balanced the work family dynamic. I won't even say balance because yeah, that's yeah. really just a, a pipe dream as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you worked at J and J, right? You've worked with these large corporations, these big names. Um, and now you, you know, you also mentioned that you have a book with the word orgasmic in it and you do talks where they say, by the way, don't say your book title. What do you have to say for our listeners when we think about how can we change the discussion at the high up level, right? So we're all here talking about vagipreneurship and stuff, right? But how do we get the heads of J&J, political leaders, you know, um, you know, people who are potentially filtering out the word vagina, how do we get them to start saying it? Because um, a lot of our uh, guests mentioned that if we can start saying vagina more, we can start bringing up like what is wrong with vaginas and how we should improve the health of vaginas, you know, and let that right. whole, the whole thing. So, you know, my approach has always been to have a, a dose of humor with it to, mm-hmm. to make people feel um, more comfortable. And, and just a quick example, when we were raising money um, for my first company in this space in 2008, which is yeah. interesting that now we're in quarantine <laughs> and that's a lot of the, um, uh, analogies that people are making is when we, we found that we couldn't get their attention talking about the seriousness of, you know, the, the lack of satisfaction and, and how the conversation wasn't happening and women didn't have a language and we're in decade three of a world with erectile dysfunction drugs and bigger, mm. longer, stronger doesn't apply to how women talk about sex and yeah. don't speak about it in performance activity. And when we took a serious approach, 
we sort of didn't get the uh, attention that we wanted in the first, certainly in the first two meetings, you're in venture capital now. So, you know, the most important thing you do in a meeting is get another meeting. That's right. That's right. Do that if people aren't asking strategic questions. Mm-hmm. And so in the first two meetings that we went into, people, the you know, men, primarily men in the room, you know, back slapping and laughing and you could hear them whispering about their, you know, exploits from high mm-hmm. school or college or whatever it was. And finally, we came up with, with a strategy um, because it was we couldn't get their attention. Yeah. And it's the story I tell. I happen to have a hundred dollar bill in my wallet, which I never do. I don't usually have two nickels because I like to track everything, so I don't use cash. <laughs> and Mary and I discovered this, and we didn't know if it was divine intervention or dumb luck. But we go into the next meeting and we take the hundred dollar bill and slam it on the table and say, "Here's a hundred dollar bill." If anyone asks us a question about the category that we can't answer or makes a double entendre that um, we haven't heard before, or a sexual innuendo that makes us blush. If any of those things happen, this $100 is yours. Um, Then we paused and said, she likes it more, she wants to have it more, let's talk about the business model. And that's, you know, when I, in the book and in my life, I think of that as the moment that I sort of stepped into this idea of orgasmic leadership, where you're you're controlling the conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, at that moment, it's not that they didn't know we were serious business people before, but in that moment, what we did is we said, you can't embarrass us, you know, have at it. Yeah. You can't embarrass us. We're happy to talk about any of the business aspects, and we would love you to give us an opportunity to talk about the business opportunity reflected here. But if you're going to be embarrassed, you're sort of going to have to take ownership of that. Yeah. And it really does change the conversation. The other piece is, you know, I've been working for a considerable period of time at this point, and I've had the benefit of working in and for large companies and consulting and running small companies. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I do is I bring in my business experience as a support. Yeah. No, it never, it is meant to be attention getting, but Mm -hmm. the real story here is there's a lot of business here. So I, from a business perspective, mm-hmm. that's how I get their attention about the opportunity um, to be in health. And you know what, I'm not going to get people in large corporations, you know, running through the hall saying vagina, I'm not even sure that's the goal. But I can, <laughs> you know, in every situation that I'm in, to talk about how important the language is. Yeah. And the last thing I'll add, which is just fascinating to me is that there's a growing body of research that suggests that young boys and girls who are taught the proper language for their genitals and what they do and how they fit together and what they what they are capable of are more likely to report instances of abuse or trauma. Yep. Yeah. And so I always say, if you don't care about business, if you're uncomfortable saying the words, everybody cares about kids. That's and if right. that's a tool that we can give our kids, you know, that's something that's in our control. Wow. That's amazing. That's, um, I mean, it's, it's empowering, it's scary, um, but it's, it's all part of coming up with a strategy to get that second meeting, whether it's you're trying to close a big client or you're trying to get an investor to invest in you. Um, you know, I, when I had my startup, I owned a Faramore, it's a DNA based dating app. And when I'd show up, to a pitch competition or uh, investor oh, meeting. Based on, based on pheromones. Yes. Yep. Yeah, 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 awesome. yeah. Um, when I'd show up to an investor meeting, they say, you know, oh, are you here to set up your CEO's PowerPoint? When's he coming? And I'd say, um, it's me. I'm the CEO. I'm here. And so I started to show up in a lab coat, which any actual scientist would be like, why are you wearing a lab coat to a PowerPoint? Like, what? that's wrong. You don't do that. But right. investors didn't know better. And so I'd 
get out of my car and I'd put my lab coat on that said Dr. Barreto, Faramore founder, and I'd show up in my lab coat and they'd say, oh, Dr. Barreto, do you want coffee? Do you need water? We're excited to hear your pitch. Whereas about a half an hour ago, they were asking you to get the coffee. Yes, like, yes, exactly. And amazing. so, I love that. you know, that's when, orgasmic leadership. I love that. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. Good. I didn't even, that's orgasmic leadership because and, and now I, I coach founders and sometimes I do coach specifically women on what to wear and like how to walk into that room because it's like from that moment you're trying to get that second meeting. And so mm -hmm. I think that's really important advice for our specifically our femtech founder listeners is how can you capitalize on humor? How can you make sure they're hearing the numbers and getting excited about the market size? And then also try to find some angles that can persuade the conversation further, like, you know, uh, children that talk about or know about body parts are more inclined to, you know, report abuse. But and, and underlying all that, when you go into a venture capital um, meeting, their objective is to figure out if they could make money from your business. That's right. So without a doubt, you have to be razor sharp on all the fundamentals of your business. What is the growth strategy? What are the key metrics? How are you performing against those? Mm -hmm. You don't get to humor unless you have that. Yeah. I mean, you have to have a legitimate business and you have to have um, the credibility so that people in the room believe you can run that business. Yes, that's right. Uh, and then I think people find their own tools that, that work for them. I yeah. love the lab code. Yeah, yeah. I have pictures of me in that silly lab coat. My science friends are like, oh my God, you know, oh, but. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know if you've seen the research um, by this amazing um, PhD. Uh, a couple of people did research that was published in the Harvard Business Review that by analyzing hundreds of conversations that venture capitalists had with men and women, they asked them very different questions. Yeah. So they have terms for them, but just to paraphrase, the men, the question that the men get asked are, you know, how big is growth? When do you think you're going to have an exit? And mm -hmm. what is your strategy? Who are you going to acquire? Mm -hmm. And the women are asked much more um, tactical questions. You know, what week are you going to be um, break even? <laughs> when are you going to expand into Southwest, the Southwest? I mean, they, they don't yep. ask them the same kind of questions such that they get to share the vision and the, yeah. and the bigness of the opportunity that they're talking about. Yeah. They ask them like defensive questions like, well, what will happen when a competitor makes your feature? But the male gets the question, what happens when you acquire your competitor? Right. It's, right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. We've been through that. So, so that's what I say even more important mm -hmm. is to go in with, you're going in as a business person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the reason I think it's important to understand the kinds of questions that you might get asked and the reason it's important to know the percentage of funding that goes to, to women is so that your business story is even sharper. That's right. Because it requires you to be an even better storyteller, an even better salesperson mm -hmm. and and, and communicate the sense of confidence that they, they need to overcome what might be unconscious bias. Yep, that's right. That's right. Rachel, this, I could literally talk to you all day, all day about all of these topics, but we like to ask all of our guests um, a question. And that question is, what does the femtech as an industry need the most right now? Two things I would say. Easier access to capital and um, then some synchronization isn't the right word, some consolidation. Mm -hmm. So there are certain 
areas of femtech there are lots of businesses i feel like we could combine back-end infrastructures and have some economies of scale uh, so those would be the two things i would say access to capital and consolidation in certain areas right. you know my fantasy is to have a company where you roll up many of the different existing companies and you basically are a platform yes and a go-to for a broad range of needs for women. And you can never have a company that meets all the needs for, for mm -hmm. women because we're so complex and mm -hmm. our certainly our sexual response system is so multifactorial mm -hmm. and has so many different systems at play. But the idea that we could um, even be, have stronger companies mm -hmm. and then the last piece is we need some enormous exits. So money talks. Yep, that's right. Rachel, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much. And uh, we'd love to have you back on the podcast again and dive deeper into any of these topics. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you. I love talking about uh, all things femtech and sexual health related. So I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Rachel. And I, I hope you're staying well and healthy during this time in our, in our history. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to my interview with Rachel Braun Sherl. She is a wealth of knowledge on femtech because she's an OG in the industry. For those that don't know what OG means, I'm referring to her as an original gangster. She's a pioneer. I'm so grateful we're able to get such high caliber leaders on this podcast. If you enjoyed hearing about Rachel's work and you have already put her book in your Amazon cart, then please support the podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing. Until next time, keep innovating and remember, improving women's health improves everyone's health. So start that fertility company, invest in that menopause deal, and tell everyone you know, Femtech is the future. <laughs>